at Jared, we know devotion isn't a once a year occasion. And once the flowers have wilted and the chocolates have disappeared, you'll still want them to know how much you care. Dare to give a gift that lasts this Valentine's Day with our incredible selection of jewelry. From delicate rose gold to bold black diamonds, Jared has hundreds of pieces under $299 and exclusive collections you won't find anywhere else. Shop online or find a store near you at jared.com and dare to be devoted. Blog Talk Radio. Another edition of Troy News is an Absolute Podcast. I'm your host, as always, John Casillo, and with me today is Dan Lyons. Hello. We had uh, some fun technical difficulties that revolved around my apartment not connecting to the internet for upwards of 45 minutes, but we're all good. And it looks like Ben is also with us. Can you hear me? Yep. We're all good. How's it going, Ben? Fantastic. Going all right. Can't complain. Glad to be here. Nice, nice. Um, so, yeah, we're not going to talk about basketball because there's a whole other podcast for that. Uh, but we <laughs> are going to talk about Wait, what happened with basketball? <laughs> well, you know, we won the national championship. We, we are the so national champions fun. of Blackbird, Virginia. <laughs> <laughs> The nation state of Blacksburg is an annex, and we are the champions. I wonder if Buzz Williams um, stopped sweating through his shirt yet. Buzz Williams is the only source of water in Blacksburg, Virginia. (laughs) (laughs) He's he's a person and the (laughs) Everyone shows up to his place at 6 a.m., they pay homage, and he... uh, he decides to to be a, a merciful god by by giving them the day's water supply. Uh, so football, lots of positive things happen there. Um, I guess Ben, why don't you lead us off? Like, what were what were some of your big takeaways on the day? I know there weren't many surprises, but and I guess what, what were some of the highlights for you um, in terms of? What was, was a great national signing day for uh, for the Syracuse Orange? I, I really think the the biggest takeaway here is just that the staff was able to close on pretty much every single person that they wanted to get um, to sign today outside of Doyle Grimes, which is really an interesting situation to say the least. Um, I know the coaches felt really good about that one, and you know I don't know what happened, but, you know, there are always some kids who, you know, will say one thing and they end up, you know, not knowing how to, you know, tell a coach they, they're not going to go there. So, you know, it is what it is. And uh, I love the class we got. Uh, the most impressive thing I think that happened today is still that Stephen Clark uh, letter of intent, because not only are you taking a kid with Florida interest, but you're taking a kid from SEC country where every single person there is in his ear about how he should play in the SEC, and you're getting him up uh, to play for Syracuse, where, you know, it couldn't be more different from where he is. So kudos to the staff for, you know, not only getting him to stay committed, but to get that letter of intent in today. Um, You know, obviously the rest of the guys we got, you know, Jake Pickard's huge. Um, obviously that story about uh, Dante Strickland in Georgia is incredible, as well as a recruiting violation considering they told him that uh, they'd get him to meet uh, A.J. Green, which you can't set up uh, a meeting like that on campus, but, you know, um, still to land him. So to get all these guys with SEC interests, with Big Ten interests, with Jim Harbaugh interests, 
you know, is is huge. Another guy, Troy Henderson, had uh, late interest from Michigan and Miami as well and stayed committed to us. So I think there's a lot of talent in this class, especially on the lines, which obviously I think has been sort of a, not a weak spot as much as, you know, an area that we've lacked depth over the past uh, few years. And I think that bringing in five on the O-line and seven on the D-line is going to go a long way. And, Dan, your specialty is usually um, O-line. What is it that uh, what is it that really stood out to you um, with the uh, pack of offensive linemen that we brought in the door? Um, I just – I really like the whole group. I think it, it's, it's very cool that we got them all around the same time. Uh, these guys have had a chance to – you know, they haven't seen each other every weekend or anything, but they've had a chance to kind of gel. I know they have their chats and whatnot that everyone's involved in. But just to bring in five guys, all of whom – you know, there doesn't seem to be a weak link between the, among the five linemen, two of whom are already uh, teammates, which has always helped. Um, Evan Adams out of North Connecticut is an absolute monster. Um, they come from pretty strong programs overall, good areas. Um, and, I mean, the biggest question mark would be Adams. And, you know, I, I played in the league. It, it's not as good as what we probably get from the Jitsum Chicago or San Francisco. But it, it's roughly, you know, the FCF football is roughly what you get. Like, it's as good as anything else in New York State, probably. It's the best area of Connecticut for it. So, um, I just think it's really cool that we brought in a, an entire group. Uh, and there's not, nothing saying that they'll all play on the same line, but we've seen um, big offensive line injuries have impacted teams in recent years between Justin Pugh and, and you know, we saw what happened to the Clemson game this year where we were shifting guys in and out and throwing guys who probably weren't ready to play against uh, the best defensive line in the nation. Um, so when you you can bring in five solid guys who they probably won't be ready to play this year. Offensive linemen very rarely play as true freshmen, but by next year, two years from now, we have a group of five uh, sophomores you know, redshirt freshmen that can plug in, and, and it really kind of rejuvenates a, a group that, while there's some really good players on campus already, uh, like Ben said, there were there were some depth concerns. Um, so it seems like the lines are where this this class really uh, focused, and I think for good reason. Uh, on another comment, too, on, uh, you know, the offensive linemen, I know you said that, you know, you're not sure who can come in and play early. I agree with you that most of the linemen will most likely be red-shirted, but one guy I do think that could come in and, you know, at least challenge for a spot would be uh, A.J. Durig because we're very, um, very uh, low at the center position. You know, we have Emmerich coming in who, you know, hopefully can, uh, you know, step his game up and be ready to start, but you also have that potential where, you know, if he gets hurt, you know, who's that next guy up? Or, you know, if um, Durin comes into camp ready to go and picks up the offense quickly, which, you know, he's a smart kid, and hopefully, you know, he gives a little bit of a challenge there to help the whole team get better. He's not a bad guy for it because Durin seems like physically um, one of the more, you know, college-ready guys. Um He's not he's not as big as some of the other ones. He's he's looked at for around two eighty. But he just seems like he's a really strong kid and, and probably has a little more uh I mean I am just kind of guessing based on what like what I've seen, but it seems like he's done more like weight you know, classic weight training and, and maybe a little bit ahead of the other guys in that in terms of that. But we also have two St. Thomas Aquinas kids. So they're getting, you know, about as college ready a football experience as you can. Yeah, I'd agree with that. No, I agree as well. I think, you know, you brought up a good point with that, Derek. I think, you know, he kind of did stand out to me. I mean, he might not have been the most raved about or anything like that, but I, I just, the second that, that I kind of saw stuff about him, he just, he really did seem like he was well-suited um, for the college game, um, in particular at Syracuse. He seems like he's a smart kid. He really cares about the program. Like, it, it's guys like that, like, no, maybe at the end of the day, those don't those qualities don't always translate on the field, but to me, at least they do speak volumes before somebody steps on campus um, that they're really willing to push. And again, he really just seems like a good kid who's going to you know, hopefully ha- have a really uh, prosperous four-year career uh, with the Orange. Yeah, and I think uh, it's a common trend with a lot of the kids in this class coming in 
is that you've seen a lot of just, you know, the love on social media from a lot of them. You know, you had, you know, all through Trey Dunkelberger, uh, through his whole um, recruitment and commitment, that kid was all about the orange. And, uh, you know, Davon Ellison is another one that's really been, you know, posting everything. Uh, once again, Dante Strickland's been out there. Um Kadir Shepard. So you have all these guys that, you know, appreciate what the staff's done, the way that they've been recruited, and, you know, I think they're getting the right messages from the staff. So obviously, you know, you have that next step now, and I think, you know, now we, is where we need to see the staff start to translate, you know, these kids uh, and their love of the team into some victories and, uh, you know, you know, maybe it could snowball into something that will catch fire. As always, I appreciate it. Wrap that out, didn't you? <laughs> First podcast, and we're already dipping into our G Lab bag. <laughs> it just came out that way. Naturally. So, I guess shifting away from uh, from the quote unquote big uglies uh, as they are. Um, this was definitely lighter on skill position players um, for obvious reasons. I think last year was pretty heavy on them. I think the year before definitely uh, dove into a lot of skill position players. Um, for you guys, who's the one skill position player out of, out of the few that we have in the door uh, that really kind of sticks out to you as, as either a four-year guy or a guy who's really going to uh, kind of turn some heads and really help us kind of close that gap um, in terms of speed and just uh, pure talent in the ACC? I mean, I think the obvious answer to that question would, you know, have to be Dante Strickland. Um, you know, as much as I hate, you know, recruiting sites and the stars and all that, you know, he's the one guy that, you know, all those sites have him rated really highly. You know, he had a good offer list. He had Georgia coming in. And whenever you have, you know, a team that has a history of running backs like they do, you know that he must be a good one. I mean, you look at his tape and the kid's just electric. And I think with the depth we have at running back, which is essentially non-existent after our last few recruiting classes and moving Irv Phillips to a slot receiver position, he's the kid that's going to have to come in right away. And if he proves on the field that he's ready to go, he's definitely going to get some carries. I think, you know, personally, I've always been high on George Morris, and I hope that, you know, with no one really blocking his progression at this point, that he can really take that position and make it his own. But I think, you know, the next person in line – um, you know, it's McFarland and then Strickland. And I think if Strickland comes in ready to go in camp, he's going to be a guy that's going to see, you know, five carries, 10 carries, 15 carries by the end of the year, you know, per game. And I think, you know, he can really show what he's all about pretty quickly with his team. Yeah. If you have a kid who is a running back and is getting lifted from Georgia, like it doesn't take, too much of a recruiting background to go look at what Georgia's done in that position. Uh, they replaced Pat Gurley with Nick Chubb this year, and they have two like fully capable five stars uh, in Keith Marshall and Tony Michelle like riding the bench. Um, if they like a hit at running back, uh, there's a good chance he's a star. So we'll see if he, you know, what he does this season. Obviously, there are a couple guys ahead of him who have had moments, but neither one's really blown us away. But Morris and, and McFarlane are two guys that. You know, a couple of years ago, if we had this podcast, we would have been raving about, especially Morris coming out of Georgia. So, like Ben said, hopefully they can make the progression uh, that we hope from them. But if not, I mean, I, it, running back is a position I think you can plug a freshman in at and get, uh, have a reasonable expectation of them being able to produce. It's, it's very, it's an instinctual position, especially depending on how uh, how the O line is, and we should return a, a couple of uh, solid guys there. So. I wouldn't be shocked either if he comes in and, and has a even as much of an impact as like Eric Phillips did this year, if not more. And I hate to, you know, sleep on the other guys that we have coming in. I mean, obviously, you had uh, the torn ACL there um, with uh, Tyrone Perkins. But I really, you know, I feel like we can't sleep on uh, Jordan Fredericks. I mean, this is a kid that at Lawrence, 
you know, granted the competition is not the greatest, but in his career scored 98 touchdowns. He had 35 touchdowns and over, you know, 2,000 yards this year, which is in one high school season is incredible. You know, regardless of the competition you play against, you know, you can only play what's in front of you. And, you know, New York State Gatorade Player of the Year, I think, you know, if he comes in ready to go too, you know, he's going to be challenging for some carries as well. So, you know, in competitions, you know, hopefully we'll breed success. And I think, you know, we could see either one of those freshman running backs coming in and, you know, playing a role in uh, the 2015 season. No, I, I'm on board with that. And like I said in the uh, the Strickland article about, uh, you know, restoring 44 and all, I, I think that, you know, pulling out a number like that, uh, whether it's for, you know, let's say George Morris or Devontae McFarlane really um, establishes themselves this year, if we come to our senses and shift our goals back to running back, if, you know, we end up getting a guy like Strickland or if we end up actually getting ourselves in the ring for a guy like uh, Washington, in 2016, I mean, I, I just don't see the problem with having it out there, not as a, hey, we're definitely going to take this thing down out of the rafters. I think you leave the jersey in the rafters all you want, but at the end of the day, you don't assign a name to it. There's already not a name assigned to it anyway. I think giving players the option, I think that you're looking at a different generation of guys, too, where they're all very willing, it seems, to not take something that isn't theirs, but to step up to the plate and say, hey, I, I want this for myself and I want the attention and I want the pressure if I prove myself leading up to it. Um, and I know, like I alluded to, when Jerome Smith was completely, like, against wearing it, and I think Prince Heights and Gully also weighed in um, on, you know, in the same kind of breath going, nah, man, I'm good, <laughs> like, having no interest in it. And I think we're seeing um, a shift because, because Floyd Little in particular, uh, working with the program, is willing to talk to recruits about it. Um, and I hope that that changes things and really, you know, gets us, if not into every top running back conversation, at least some of the running back conversations um, in the Northeast and Midwest. Well, I've I've kind of made my, you know, on the sites I've, you know, written for a little bit, I've kind of made my thoughts on 44 known. And, you know, it's a number that at the beginning of its time obviously was worn by some great, great running backs, Hall of Fames, uh, Hall of Famers. And, you know, throughout the years, that star diminished a little bit as it went through the years. And, you know, you get into the 2000s, you know, Dr. Gross comes in, retires the number, and then, you know, now all these people are all of a sudden saying, well, we should be giving this offer to everyone. And as much as I think, you know, it's just a number, I mean, there really has to be that special talent that makes it worth it. And I really do like, you know, everything I've seen um, from Dante Strickland, but I don't think that he's the kid that, you know, you give the 44 to. Just like, you know, some people might have said, give it to George Morris. I don't think you need to give it to you know, one of these kids. But when you have a guy like Robert Washington who has offers from, you know, almost every school in the country, um, SEC, big schools there, I think that's where, you know, maybe you float that out there a little bit more. But, you know, in a case like that, I feel like you need to make sure that it's a kid that will represent the program with class, Um, you know, a kid that you're pretty sure is a natural leader because, you know, that can always upset the onion cart in the locker room as well because then you have the other running backs thinking, well, why didn't I, why don't I deserve 44? And this isn't like the 90s anymore where you have a kid that, you know, might not be, you know, a lot of these kids now are entitled and they're told how good they are every day. And I'm not saying any of our current running backs that are like that, but, you know, people get slighted, people get angry, and people you know, might take that the wrong way if you're giving it to a true freshman. So I think it'll be interesting to see what happens with it moving forward. But I think, you know, just throwing it out there for everyone, I think that it's a little bit unnecessary. Unless it's see, for me, see, for me, I think that the discussion of it there, I think that 
But I, I, I never think I, I don't want a situation like we had with Jordan Evans on the lacrosse team this past year, where part of him coming here was getting 22. Like that, that should never be how it is. I think that we really, and I think Strickland, you know, did allude to it um, in his conversation. The big thing was, you know, if he if he checks the boxes, if he earns it, then he gets it. And I think that's one of those things where, yeah, you don't tell any kid you're getting it. I, I think it becomes what it used to be um, when it first became as big as it is now, is, is that, you know, you prove yourself. I mean, granted, Ernie Davis didn't necessarily prove himself on the field until he already had it. But in many other cases, you know, it just became you're given it because of what you do. And, and I'd like to see us kind of go to that of, like, no, George Morris doesn't seem like the type of kid that should wear 44, but if next year George Morris runs for 1,800 yards, George Morris should be wearing number 44 in 2016. I think, you know, it doesn't mean that we always have to have a 44. It doesn't mean that we're ever going to see a kid wear it as a freshman, or at least we shouldn't. But I, I think that the option should be there if, if somebody if somebody can prove themselves on the field. Like, I don't, I, I never want to make judgment calls on pedigree and just give out 44 to someone because that's it, how you dilute the value of, of the number, I guess. Well, I mean, and just one thing on that, I mean, it's really difficult to compare, you know, lacrosse where – Syracuse is a preeminent program or, you know, has been one of the preeminent programs throughout the years. They're the Alabama, they're the Florida of the world. But when you're Syracuse football and you're one of 120 teams in Division One, and you're probably, you know, in the top 50 of those recruiting-wise, if you need to use 44 as a carrot to land one of the best recruits in the country at the running back position and he can legitimately change the program, I feel like that's a case where if you're wrong, you know what, it happens, but that's a kid that you need to take that risk for. Um, whereas, you know, if you're taking 44 and you're giving it to, you know, a three-star recruit coming in, you know, that's where, you know, you're like, well, I wish we didn't give it to him because he would have come here anyways. I, I think there's an interesting balance um, that maybe can be struck. I, I remember, and I wrote about it, and I feel like I wrote about it for for, for noon uh, when I was covering spring football back in the day, um, back during the Marone years, and it never really picked up a lot of steam. But Marone came out and said, like, we talked with uh, – Floyd Little and Dr. Gross, and we think that we want to consider getting 44 back in the rotation for existing players, something that they can earn. Um, obviously, that would take away the recruiting aspect, which I think is a big part of it. But like Ben has said, I don't think we should just throw it out at anyone. I think if it's a kid like, like Robert Washington, maybe, who has Ohio State offers and the SEC is all over, and we're somehow still sticking around with him because he really likes our staff, and he understands the legacy of it, which I think uh, I think the Express has had a pretty decent impact in that regard. Um, that's a kid we go for. But otherwise, I don't think it would be the worst thing in the world, like like if you said, John, if George Morris went and lit the world on fire this year um, and expressed interest in wearing the jersey for, as a senior, um, to get that number back out there on a, on a player that we have seen do well, because then we start to build on the legacy again and get it into modern, the modern day, where we haven't had it since Rob Conrad in the 90s. So maybe it can become a mix of those things where it's either, you know, if we think the kid is a can't-miss transformational player, then we take a shot on him. Otherwise, if there's a proven running back on the roster who's kind of paid his dues and it's proven he's a star, then that's also an option. Well, I think in that case, too, is where you might run into some problems because – Let's say George Morris does come out and, you know, runs for 1,800 yards and you say, oh, we're going to give him 44, and now there's all this hype around him for his senior year, and then he goes out there and he's averaging three yards a carry through the first, you know, three games, and now you're saying, well, this is this kid that we've built up to 44, and now he's succumbing to all the pressure and we can't put him on the bench because he's wearing 44 and all the fans are expecting greatness. 
and then you you know you have that problem as well. And I'm not saying that wouldn't happen in any other situation, but it's another one of those things where you know you're adding to the pressure that's already on a kid uh, struggling to perform in the first few games of a season that could derail the whole season in general. Yeah, I mean, there's always risk associated with things like this, so it'll be interesting to see how they how they how they uh, approach it. I do hope that they find a, a way to get it back into the rotation because we are very very lacking in terms of football traditions, and that's a really great one. And uh, I hope they come to a, an agreement on how to get it done. And I think guys like Floyd Little and and if Jim Brown is involved, like they'll they'll be guys who have really valuable insight into it because they experience, especially Floyd experienced firsthand how it worked back when that was such a great tool and uh, such an honor. Yeah, I mean, I, I know that the committee is a committee of three. I mean, it's it's gross, it's brown, and it's little. Um, I'd almost find, I, I would almost want it to be kind of, a, kind of a hyphen committee type thing where, like, you know, all the previous 44s get a vote. So basically, like, Again, you don't have to have a 44 every year, but I think if, like, let's say if you did a super majority of of the, you know, previous 44s and the athletic director, maybe the head coach said, you know, before the season started, this person's getting 44. I mean, I, I think that adds some additional hurdles to it. I mean, I definitely, I definitely agree with your point, Ben. I think that there is some pressure to it, but I, I think the players that truly deserve it and the players that we're going to give it to, more often than not, are are gonna you know kind of respond to that bell. Yeah, I think that would be the hope. But you know, that's you know my thing is if that is what derails a potential great season, you know, because we decided to bring back forty four for the first time in fifteen years and throw it on our senior running backs back, and then he comes out and just stinks for the first two games because he can't get shake that pressure and now every team's gunning for him and how to stop him, you know, that could, you know, theoretically change the season. And you know, I think I think there's just positives and negatives and I think uh you know this might be the year that we see what actually happens and if they're serious about the forty four because Robert Robert Washington is that once-in-a-lifetime recruit for this staff. And if that's what it takes to land them, and I and Scott Schaefer, if Robert says, if you give me 44, I will come here, and Schaefer gives him the 44 and he comes to Syracuse, that's what you need to do. I mean, if he's if he still wants to come here without the 44, I'll take it as well. But <laughs> I think if you, you know, if you can offer him the 44 and guarantee that he signs his letter of intent and comes to Syracuse and changes the face of the program, that's what you got to do. I also think we, we have to acknowledge now that if Dr. Gross is in this committee with Floyd Little and Jim Brown, I think Dr. Gross is a 44. I think he's part of that legacy now. <laughs> Played. Um, yeah, so I guess we got derailed a little bit of the 44 conversation, but I think it is a good one to bring up uh, now and again. Um, I guess some other players, uh, one that I kind of brought up in, in Sean's roundtable today was, uh, was Trey Dunkelberger. Uh, I think, you know what, like we, we, a lot of people were wondering why we had so many guys who could potentially be tight ends, uh, why we weren't using them all on offense, and I uh, Ben, I believe it was you or somebody else that quickly listed off like the five to seven guys we have at tight end on yep. the roster already. Um <laughs> so I, I think though that Duckelberger just seems like he has the size and strength to really kind of become this force. I mean, I, I don't I haven't started the tape enough to really see his speed, but if we're gonna run a two tight end set, um I, I think this is a perfect I think he, he does kind of fit the mold as a guy who can grow into the program and grow into an offense that, you know, if it's successful, that means that Schaefer and Lester stick around, which means that Dunkelberger kind of grow into his role over a three- or four-year span. Uh, so so I, I do think that, that he um, stands a really, really good chance um, to become a breakout player for us, or at least I hope. Yeah, I think in that regard, I mean, you saw it uh, with the progression of the season where – 
you know, we had West Linder committed um, who was in that mold of the Jamal Custises and the Adley Noises. And when Lester became the offensive coordinator and you heard that we were going to start using more 12 personnel, you know, that's kind of where it shifted to, hey, you know, we have the wide receiver, the pass-catching tight ends, but we don't have that guy that can block and, you know, drop off into the flat, um, but still have that athleticism to, you know, be that dual threat tight end kind of guy. You know, we have the guys like Paris and Kendall Moore that are the bigger tight ends. You have the, you know, the pass catchers, and I think we're looking for that happy balance, but we're also looking for that guy that can do both. And I think Dunkelberger's skill set, you know, for his size, for his agility, is impressive. And unfortunately, you know, with his highlight tape, because of the way his college played, you don't have a lot of those, you know, pass-catching highlights, but I think you can see the athleticism in the tape. And he's definitely a tenacious kid that can go out there and hit somebody and lay a good block. And I think he, you know, has the hands as well. And obviously, you know, if you read SyracuseFan.com, you know, his, you know, his mother posts there, and, you know, she always talks about how Trey gets after it in the gym, you know, is always out trying to make himself a better player. So when you have a kid with the motivation like that, that went to JUCO on his own accord to get offers, you have a kid that, you know, is setting himself up to be successful. And I feel like in this offense uh, that it appears we're moving towards, uh, he can really be a catalyst there. So it'll be really interesting to see how he's utilized and, you know, how he looks during the spring uh, practice period. Yeah, he's also one of those kids where, according to his mom over on Syracuse Band, which uh, she, this, this class just seems to have so many parents that are all over the place and really excited about Syracuse, which makes you feel good about the kids, and, and he's definitely one of them. Um, apparently he was getting a lot of interest from some big programs uh, coming in after the fact, which is the case with apparently like half the kids in our class. So that's another thing that makes it hard to totally take into account you know, how these kids are rated. Um, because there's so many kids that we that it doesn't come public information uh, what schools come in after the fact. Um, we hear about the ones like Stephen Clark who has the Florida offer, and he obviously entertains that, and as he rightfully should have. Um, but we don't hear about Georgia coming after Dante Strickland until signing day. And there are probably other big-time schools that have come after our kids or have at least entertained our, uh, the notion of, of trying to flip our kids that we'll never hear about. So, um, Dunkelberger is one of those guys, and it's, it's always interesting, you know, the, some of the stuff probably doesn't even reach these sites and it doesn't even factor into their evaluations, whether it should or not. So um, that's a thing to keep in mind when you, you know, we, I saw a couple guys on Twitter and on the comments like today trying to poo-poo this being a good class because it's ranked, you know, in the 50s and the high 50s. And there are so many, it's such an imperfect science, and there's so much information that even the people who write uh, about recruiting for a living don't know uh, about each one of these these uh, recruitments that it, it's it's hard to make a perfect thing. Um, so I, I, I'm pretty optimistic about this class. Uh, and that was just an example. I, having Nuckleberger brought up kind of just popped that in my head. So I don't well, have in, much reason there. In that regard, too, Dan, you know, it's it's something that, you know, you can't, unless you have that inside scoop, you're not going to know what's going on because a lot of programs won't throw that offer out there unless they're pretty damn sure that that prospect is going to choose them. When you had, uh, you know, Tide Cross this last week, you know, Wake Forest, had a, there are a couple articles out there about how Wake was confident they were going to land him, so they offered, and they had him out for an official visit. And, you know, someone, you know, like me that's been following the process the whole time, what does Wake Forest have that, you know, puts them above us outside of proximity, which is nothing at this point. And for Cross, you know, there was never anything that indicated he wasn't 100% orange. And you keep seeing these articles talk about it. And then, you know, it broke uh, last night that he was never even really considering Wake. But so that makes Wake look bad. And, you know, in the future, 
they might be more wary about throwing that offer out there unless they know for a fact he's going to commit. So like we did with uh, Kellen Whitner is, you know, we told him, you know, we're going to offer you, and he played coy in the initial interviews and everything, saying he wasn't sure, but he was a kid that we knew. You're not going to turn down Syracuse coming from App State. And I think, you know, we don't know the offers that some of these kids get. Like Trey's mother said he had Florida State looking at him. He had, I think, Ohio State call. He had all these big schools calling to see, you know, what his interest is. Do you think you would flip if we offered you? And that's when the offer comes. So unless you're really getting that reporter that, you know, he has access to that family where he can really extract that information out, you're not going to find out about it. And we wouldn't have found out about the Florida offer uh, for Stephen Clark, really, or the Florida interest, you know, without his father first speaking about that on Syracuse fan. And then because originally Clark wasn't even entertaining it, he wasn't even, he told him nicely no, and they kept calling his house. So you don't find out about these things uh, unless you really have a, a writer that has that connection where he can go really in depth with the prospect or that prospect really likes to talk about, you know, who he's speaking with. That's good stuff. And actually, uh, for those listening, that's a little glimpse, I guess, into kind of how the recruiting sausage gets made. And uh, I think, you know, Ben, obviously you're you're very, very plugged into all that, and and Dan is too. And I definitely hang around on the outskirts, but I, I definitely follow along probably more than your casual, at least Northeast college football fan. Um, and I think for a lot of Syracuse fans, you know, it, they, they love hearing about the stuff, but they're never really sure like how it all comes about. And I, I think that that's some great insight for them uh, to kind of share. Yeah. It's a, it's, it's a very, it's a very interesting science that I really, you know, kind of follow probably too much for my own good, but it's really uh, interesting to see, you know, how some of it works. I mean, I posted it in our, in the, you know, the thread this morning about how, you know, Pitt had the kid that, you know, got a national letter of intent from Ole Miss, and Ole Miss hadn't even talked to him. And he went right there and committed to sign his letter of intent to Ole Miss and said said to uh, Pat Narduzzi, sorry, but uh, thanks for recruiting me, but I'm out. And it's it's really, you know, you're trying to predict – what a 17, 18-year-old kid's going to do. And I can tell you, when I was 17 or 18, I didn't know what I was going to do. So it's really, you know, something that's a total crapshoot that, you know, you you think you know and you really don't know anything. You can think, you know, prospects leaning one way and, you know, it's a complete 180 the other way around. So, I think that's what makes it intriguing and, you know, that and the fact that it's really completely different than any other sport in the world and how it works, you know, good and bad. So. Um, I know you mentioned Wake Forest before, uh, so I think it's worth kind of diving into maybe a little bit of our, our ACC cohort. Uh, Wake had a pretty deep, I mean, especially by their standards, really decent class, um, but I think the real, real surprise by the end of Selection Sunday, and this was kind of a slow build to it anyway, was um, NC State and, and how they were able to really put together, um, a, I would say, phenomenal class uh, in terms of, of the Wolf Pack. Uh, Dan, we'll start with you. Kind of was that, was that your biggest shocker, um, ACC-wise? Um, you know, how do you think they're doing it, and how do you think Wake was able to, to kind of put it together today? Um, in terms of Wake, I think there's always uh, a natural bump when a coach has his first full class. Um, kids don't – they it's very easy to tell kids I'm not worrying too much about what happened uh, with a coach's first year, um, which obviously is the case for, for Dave Clawson because the first year at Wake was not good. Uh, so, But, you know, he was, his cupboard is left very bare, so it's a, it's a legitimate excuse. Um, for NC State, it's a little more interesting. They, they're right now, um, I'm looking at 24-7 composites. They're up to 30th. They were actually up to 29th for a point. Someone bumped them down in the country. Uh, and NC State was better last year than they were the year before. We know by just looking at NC State's schedule that there's a reason why they were better. 
Um, they were a little better on the field, but they also, you know, help, it helped that Syracuse was in the tank, Wake was in the tank, uh, and they played three or four completely joke non-conference games. But I think you tweeted it earlier, John. Um, it, it seems to work. Obviously, NC State's in a, in a more uh, viral recruiting ground. Um, there's, but they, they got a, a really great running back from Johnny Frazier, who's ranked uh, in the top ten in the country at that position. Um, which they can obviously use. They have a bunch of kids that are that are rated very highly. They they cleaned up in North Carolina. Um, they got after a lot of the same Florida kids as us, and, and obviously having George McDonald there probably doesn't hurt for the end of the class, um, and it will probably not be a very fun thing to deal with going forward. Uh, now it's took a bunch of JUCOs, it looks like, um, just looking at their class again now. Um, a, lot, a couple of kids coming in from some of those California schools, so uh, yeah, it's it's if you can put wins on the board, I don't think the kids always look at them quite as uh, as deeply as some of us might when we're looking to compare ourselves. Like it, it's very easy to just throw, you know, hey, we won seven or eight games this year. You know, they might not go and look that two of those schools had just moved up from FCS the year before, and the two other ones were, you know, perennial losers. It's it just that's how many games they won and the program's moving in the right direction. So, um, obviously, I, I don't think I ever want to see Syracuse schedule quite twi- twi- like uh, SC State does, but clearly it's something that's worked for them, and they're doing it again this year. So, if that's what works, then more power to them, I guess. Well, NC State is almost, you know, the Rutgers of North Carolina. I mean, <laughs> that's they're building through through a terrible schedule. You know, their fans are interesting, to say the least. But I think another thing that gets overlooked when you're looking at NC State is that they're in a very talent-rich area when it comes to, you know, football. Because you're close to, you know, the Floridas, the Georgias, uh, those places. But you're also in that Tidewater region where, you know, you have the kids in NC in North Carolina, where if you can keep them home and you can keep the good ones to stay home and convince them that, you know, NC State's a better choice than UNC, which right now with UNC's scandal that they have going on, it is almost a better choice. And then you have Duke who, you know, is okay and they've had some nice seasons recently, but it's still Duke. So NC State, is a situation where with the right staff and the right recruiters, and if they play, you know, exciting football, you know, they could definitely be a program that could all of a sudden, you know, come out of nowhere and, you know, get all the way to the Texas Bowl. And, you know, obviously that's a Rutgers parallel, but I think that, you know, they're a potential, you know, program that could really take advantage of where they're located while UNC and Duke have, you know, down seasons and, uh, you know, really they've done a great job with their staff and now bringing in George McDonald, you know, who knows what can happen going forward for them. Yeah, I think we have interesting with it. You can go for it, Dan. Uh, I was going to say, we should, A, we should start calling them the State University of North Carolina State University. <laughs> um, and B, I think they also have the advantage uh, over Duke uh, specifically and Wake Forest, I guess, to to, a, to an extent where um, I don't think, outside of Stanford, I don't think this really matters to most schools for the most part, but I think Duke and Wake both have more stringent academics and NC State can definitely get in closer to borderline kids um, which helps. Yeah, that's that's probably pretty accurate. Um, I mean, you would think that those schools would, uh, you know, kind of carry themselves a little bit higher, and uh, NC State's probably, you know, in the same boat as, you know, West Virginia and schools like that and their admission standards. So that's a fair point as well. So I think that, you know, it, it could be a really good combination for them that could allow them to have uh, some nice success in uh, the ACC over the next few years. Key for them is not to lose. Like I did not lose Doran. There's apparently some some of the other schools that needed coaches went stepping around his way this year. Interesting. Yeah, see, if I'm him, like knowing that NC State doesn't have a huge booster club, knowing that their history of success is minimal, knowing that 
there are better jobs out there. I, I am curious how long he stays, considering because aren't his his ties are Midwest originally, right? Yeah, I think he was mostly a Mac guy. He's very similar to Dave honestly, in terms of like his his background. That's the thing. Like at the end of the day, all these guys are from similar trees. Like between him and Matt Canada and all these other guys, I see them all heading back to the Big Ten at some point once once the like current group of top coaches there or or the bottom half even start moving on. Um, you know, like I just don't think the end of the road for for Dave Dorn is. Uh, is NC State. And we, we hit an interesting point with NC State, and I think that hits on kind of why a lot of schools are puzzling. Uh, I think NC State, uh, Virginia, uh, probably Rutgers, Maryland, and a couple others are all kind of in the same boat, that, that continual, perpetual sleeping giant mold. They throw North Carolina in there as well. Um, you know, for the most part, uh, state schools, Virginia obviously has a little bit higher of a crust in terms of, you know, what they're looking for academically. North Carolina might claim that, but we all know otherwise based on what's been going on there lately. Um, You know, all those schools kind of have inhabited these sleeping giant monikers now for about a decade, and uh, and not one of them has played in in a BCS ball or an equivalent thereof, except for Maryland, um, in one of those wacky down years for the ACC, when I think they went like 10-1. and in like 2001 and played in the Orange Bowl. Um, so, so I think what we, we should watch out for going forward is, you know, if, if they're not, if, if schools like, especially in, in our conference footprint, if schools like Virginia and NC State aren't going to take the baton, we need to find ways to take it from them um, and, and really get into those North Carolina and Virginia areas. I like where we're recruiting now, but I think that there's a lot of untapped potential, obviously, in those areas if local schools aren't going to grab those kids. Well, we dipped into the Tidewater when we went after Shamarco and Brandon Sharp, but those have really been – oh, and uh, um, Jackson George and Kenta Funderburk. But outside of those four, we really, you know, haven't stuck around there. And I think part of that is, uh, you know, our staff trying to keep sh- true to – you know, traditional recruiting areas, going with what works and uh, trying to see, you know, um, trying to be the areas that they're used to and what they specialize in. So I think we're still, regardless of the talent down there, you're still going to see us focusing on, you know, Georgia, Florida, um, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Illinois, um, and then, you know, there'll be an outlier here and there. But I really don't see us really going in too hard on North Carolina outside of uh, that current crew of Robert Washington and his married men uh, with all his cousins and buddies and stuff like that. So that might be the next group of North Carolina uh, recruits we see, you know, taking a look. But I don't think it will really extend too far past there. Yeah, I buy that. I mean, I, I definitely think too. You're, you're going to see uh, more of a change um, in the recruiting dynamics in Virginia and uh, North Carolina as Appalachian State um, and Charlotte and Old Dominion really get a foothold, um, and as Georgia and Georgia Southern uh, get a foothold down in Georgia and realize kind of that you're probably not going to be able to function down there as much, if only because the SEC has already really planted its flag. So I'm curious to see, and I know Dan and I talked about this in the podcast for each of the last two summers, um, kind of what those programs can bring to the table and, and really how they can shift the dynamic. I mean, if App State has not really gotten into those conversations yet, um, or even Charlotte or Old Dominion can start shaking things up and really uh, displacing schools like, like Duke and, and Wake Forest for, for borderline commits, um, it, it, things are going to get very interesting um, in, in that part of the country that look like a rapidly kind of rising recruiting power and now could end up um, fading back slightly if only because of overcrowding. See, I, I don't see with – I think you could have made that argument a few years ago, 
but with the growing power of the Power Five conferences and autonomy and the four-year scholarship, unfortunately, I don't think we'll ever see Old Dominion, you know, competing for a recruit with a Power Five offer. I mean, they're still going to be able to get kids from the Temples and the Yukons and the Memphises of the world and the Tulanes, but I really don't think that you know, with everything these Power Five conferences offer now, I don't think we'll ever see a kid really, uh, you know, making that choice uh, moving forward outside of the rare situation where the staff really connected with that kid and told him what he wanted to hear and he believed it. Fair point. Um, we only got a few minutes left. Uh guess... I guess quick, we'll, we'll track back to one of the, the questions that Sean had asked. Um, if there was one recruit, and that could be either side of the ball, um, that you guys think we'll look back on and go, man, that was the guy who either turned it around or was the guy who really, um, you know, like made a huge impact for four years. Um, who do you think uh, that player is? I mean, I, it's hard to narrow down one guy. I know my answer to that question when Sean asked it was uh, 100% Evan Adams because I really, his tape is awesome. I've said it so many times. I'm pretty sure he'll be in the NFL. And if not, you know, get Chad Ford to, you know, erase that prediction for me. But I really think that he's going to be that guy that is the anchor uh, on our line and that really, you know, makes our line one of the best in the ACC moving forward because I really like this offensive line class, but I really think he's the best one in it. Um, But I really can't just say he's the guy. You know, I really think if Marquise Blair gets here um, and he, you know, continues the route he's on and is able to qualify, I think that he's going to be another one of those kids. I mean, I saw him today compared to, you know, Luis Delmas, which – you know, another Schaefer kid that, you know, would be great. But if you look at Blair coming out of high school and you look at Delmas coming out of high school, Blair is on another level right now compared to him. So, you know, I think Blair, you know, his ceiling is, you know, Darrell Eskridge without the injuries. I think he's going to be a great recruit for us. I think, you know, every single guy we got on the D-line there's not really one I'm not excited about. Amir Ely, I think, has Chandler Jones' potential. Kadir Shepard has been, you know, there are a lot of reports of him over the, you know, the all-star games he was in as being unblockable. And, you know, he could either be, you know, a run-stopping D-end or a guy that can kind of shift inside when needed. You know, you have a guy like Jake Pickard who, you know, I haven't even mentioned, and he's, possibly one of the crown jewels of the class. And then you got Stephen Clark. So I really think the strength of this class is on the D-line. I think that when all said and done, you know, this D-line is going to be the best in the ACC. You know, it has it has the, the different talents on it. You know, it has a lot of variety, but it has a lot of guys with a lot of potential. So I think, you know, if you're looking at, who won the, I mean, this class for us, you know, you're looking at the line of scrimmage. And I think that's really going to play a big role in how we play football over the next few years. So hopefully, you know, the staff can do its job, keep winning, and really put their plan into vision because I think some of these kids could, you know, really pay off for the staff. And I really like the way the staff develops players. Dan, it's all you. Yeah, um, I, I agree with a lot of that. I think that this is definitely a, a class, like we've said before earlier in the podcast, the strength is in the trenches. Um, I, I think we've been playing without a true, a, a real, I mean, Jake Brown, we had a great year. We haven't had a, a couple of years ago, but we haven't had a star uh, edge pass rusher since Chandler was here. Um, and I think that we have a decent shot of picking up one of those, especially with, with Jake Picard. Uh, being the most obvious candidate for that, um, which would be good. It would it would 
to kind of take some pressure off of the linebackers to create all all of the pass rush on the team. Uh, although I, I always I think we'll continue to be a heavy blitzing uh, defense just because that's what Schaefer and Bullock do. Uh, and then I, I really like um, a lot of these defensive backs. I, I'm always uh, kind of enamored with, with the big long D-backs. I think that it gives a real advantage in some of the freak wide receivers we're going to see from Clemson and Florida State. So when you have a guy like Marcus Blair, who's 6'3", uh, or even um, I'm blanking on the name of, of uh, who we just picked up. Uh, Whitner. Yeah, uh, who's like 6'1". Um, you know, it's nice to have those longer kind of guys, and we've seen we've seen some of those types be very successful for us, uh, successful for us in the past. Um, between you know, Estridge when he was healthy was great. Uh, Tian Lin had his moments, um, and then uh, I think even a guy who isn't quite uh, in that mold, but Devon Ellison, uh, we 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 really are are we need corners, we need safeties, and and some of these guys, uh, especially if uh, if it to campus. We uh, we're, some of these guys are going to get thrown into uh, into roles as freshmen, I think. So, and then the one guy who we haven't even brought up um, because he's you know not at the sexiest position in the world, but if Sterling Hoffert comes in and can kick, kick the ball consistently for four years, uh, he'll make as big of an impact as anyone. We've seen we've been through hell with these kickers the last couple of years. So, if he can go shore up that position for four years straight, I mean that that's huge. I think the craziest thing is that. We've done this whole podcast, and we haven't even once touched on the linebackers we have coming in. I mean, you have, you know, with the class we brought in last year, which, you know, at linebacker was fantastic. You have Bagger Franklin is already playing. You have Johnson Thomas, who's just an athletic priest that could have gone to Oklahoma. And then you add on, you know, with the, the other guys you brought in there, you know, Paris Bennett, Cole Mossville. And then you come in and you bring in guys like, you know, Shy Cullen, who – Physically, looks like a college senior. Uh, Troy Henderson, who's coming from a powerhouse school in Ohio that won the state championship, and the kid had 170 tackles this year. You know, there's really not a lot to dislike about this class, and I think, you know, maybe talking about it gets me a little more excited than, you know, anyone else would be looking at it. But I really think you know, some of these kids we're bringing in are very underrated, you know, in their class, especially, you know, I think that, you know, there's the potential that if either, you know, Cullen or um, Henderson comes in, you know, at in great condition and, you know, picks up the playbook quick, they could be starting next year. It's a young linebacker core, and I think the staff has done a great job in assessing what, positions they've needed over the past few years and really attacking that. And hopefully in the classes moving forward, we see a little bit more balance on positions because I don't think we can keep going skill positions, defense, ugly, skill positions, defense, ugly. But I think we did a great job, uh, you know, addressing what we thought were the weak spots in this uh, team this year. I think that's a great point. I think that's a great point to close it out on too. Uh, you're right, we were very remiss in uh, not getting on those linebackers, especially considering how well um, we've done kind of generating some great talent um, at that position. Uh, but I'm sure there'll be plenty more to talk about on the site um, in the next few days. Uh, ben, as always, appreciate your efforts on the recruiting front. Uh, it was another great National Signing Day, and uh, I, I think that, you know, despite some basketball news, I guess, that came out later in the day, I still think the highlight of the day was Signing Day, was that great recruiting class and appreciate all your efforts year round. And Dan, thank you for, for joining us as always. Thanks for having me. Yep. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Hopefully we can do it again sometime. Maybe, uh, you know, have some more recruiting features going forward. Sounds awesome. Uh, everybody at home, you've been listening to Troy Nunes, an absolute podcast, uh, here on blog talk radio or iTunes, wherever you may have downloaded it. Um, like us, review us, rate us, whatever you want to do. Uh, just say nice things, please. Uh, it does help us out. Um, and thanks for listening. Go Orange. At Jared. 
We know devotion isn't a once a year occasion. And once the flowers have wilted and the chocolates have disappeared, you'll still want them to know how much you care. Dare to give a gift that lasts this Valentine's Day with our incredible selection of jewelry. From delicate rose gold to bold black diamonds, Jared has hundreds of pieces under $299 and exclusive collections you won't find anywhere else. Shop online or find a store near you at jared.com and dare to be devoted. At Jared, we know devotion isn't a once a year occasion. And once the flowers have wilted and the chocolates have disappeared, you'll still want them to know how much you care. Dare to give a gift that lasts this Valentine's Day with our incredible selection of jewelry. From delicate rose gold to bold black diamonds, Jared has hundreds of pieces under $299 and exclusive collections you won't find anywhere else. Shop online or find a store near you at jared.com and dare to be devoted.